You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story that offers insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma, a former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma, stories that thrill and entertain as much as inspire and inform. Today is week five of the Religion and Fiction Book Club, exploring the last chapters of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this week we explore a deeper magic from the dawn of time. Glad you're here for the journey. Stay tuned. Hey, religious fiction readers! This is episode five of the Religion and Fiction podcast, as well as the fifth week of the Religion and Fiction book club, where we come to the end of the story, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and discover the end results of where we left off last week at chapter 14. Those results, deeper magic from the dawn of time. Because after Aslan's sacrificial death for Edmund's treachery, Susan and Lucy held each other's hands for mere loneliness and cried again, and then again were silent, as the story goes. Now, this scene for me is incredibly reminiscent of the scene at the cross of Christ, when all hope that the disciples had for this coming king, their Messiah, Jesus, were dashed. And really, all those moments when it seems like the loneliness and hopelessness and horridness is never going to end is wrapped up not only in the cross and the resurrection, but also wrapped up in these moments here for Susan and Lucy at the death of Aslan. Sort of like the past few years, right? From 2020 to 2022 here at the end, it's just been this long loneliness and hopelessness and horridness. But of course, Aslan's death isn't the final word in the story, because Aslan comes back. There is more magic to be had. As Aslan himself explains, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Now, the beauty of the story is the same beauty and majesty as the Christian story, that death in all of its forms doesn't have the final word in our story because of the resurrection, which is so beautifully captured by C.S. Lewis in the resurrection, if you will, of Aslan. Now, Aslan's resurrection doesn't just have significance for him. No, it matters for all of Narnia. In chapter 16, we find the fruit of this resurrection, where the cold stone statues become warm and living, and the courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked more like a zoo, as the story says in page 168. And I love that illustration. Museums to zoos. (laughs) And the same is true of our own story. Thanks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we who are in Christ have passed from death to life, from a museum life to a zoo life. And just like P. 
Peter and Edmund. Lucy and Susan, who find their true selves and identities and purposes thanks to Aslan's words, we too find our life, our true selves, in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. More on all of this magical revolutionary news for every single person on the planet inside this episode. All right. Hey there, J.A. Bauma here coming to you with the final session of our Religion and Fiction book club using C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We've been uh, spending five weeks now walking through this enchanting, inspiring story and just want to say thanks for joining the journey and hope that it has been uh, this enchanting, inspiring, enlightening experience, kind of a uh, walking through some of the elements uh, of the story that uh, touch on the more religious, the Christian, and explaining some of those deeper aspects while also giving you just a, a, an exciting, enchanting read during these crazy times ending 2020. I know for me, this has been exactly what I needed, the elixir to get my uh, heart right, my mind right, ending the year, walking into the next year. And hopefully the same thing has been true for you. It's been a good experience for me, and it's been fun to kind of dive deeper into those uh, more religious elements of the story and draw some of those out and consider how they apply to my own life and my own story uh, in light of the story that C.S. Lewis wrote for uh, kids and kids at heart. So thanks again. Uh, We're at week five, the final week in our book club And uh, let's get started. Chapters 15, 16, and 17. So in this final week, we wrap up. We come to the end of this story, leaving off where we left off in the last session, week four, with chapter 14. And you'll remember that Aslan made the ultimate sacrifice, giving his life for the sake of treacherous Edmund. And we know, though, that uh, this wasn't the end of the story, if you continued reading on. But at the end of uh, chapter 14, it looked like all hope was lost. Susan and Lucy were there watching what unfolded the White Queen, the witch, with her uh, cohort of evil beings, humiliating Aslan, cutting off his hair, tying him down on the stone table, and bludgeoning him with uh, a knife and killing him. And I can't imagine what that was like for the, the those girls to be there witnessing this act unfold, uh, believing that their hope, um, their hero was dead, was lost. And I connected that a bit to the, the feeling that the disciples would have felt when Jesus himself died on the cross, uh, was taken from the garden by the the soldiers, uh, the Roman soldiers, the the temple officials, put on trial, brought before Pilate, sentenced to death, and then they're watching from the sidelines. He's put on the cross and dies. And imagine being those disciples, uh, those men, those women who found their hope uh, for their own story in the story of, of Jesus and who he was, what he meant for them, and what he uh, came to do as their promised Messiah to fight the final fight, to release the captives, release them from uh, politi- politically the captivity under Rome and occupation, but also to restore temple worship, 
to bring Israel and, and all their hopes back from exile, really. And uh, these Jewish men and women who found their hope in Jesus were left hopeless, uh, despairing. And we find that in the story right here with Lucy and Susan. They're there at the beginning of chapter 15. Uh, it's quiet. It's nighttime. The, the witch is left with her minions. And Susan and Lucy are more lonely and hopeless and horrid than I know how to describe, as as the narrator says. And uh, that's that's how any of us would have felt, wouldn't we? If we were the disciples standing in the cross with Jesus Christ and, and these girls at the stone table in darkness, Aslan is dead, and they are lonely, they're hopeless, they have this horrid feeling, right? Right before that, uh, they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness and cried again, and then again were silent. If any of us have experienced tragedy, if any of us have witnessed tragedy, whether it's this year with losing jobs, the pandemic, uh, losing loved ones because of the pandemic and the, the virus, or uh, for any number of other reasons, we know that feeling, don't we? The loneliness, the hopelessness, the, the this feeling of just flat-out horridness. And there they are. They're experiencing this in all of its weight, in all of its uh, intensity and depth. But we know that this isn't the end of the story, right? But they don't know that yet. There they are. And I want to read one more aspect of uh, one more part of the chapter 15 in my book is page 158 in the middle there. Uh, there's an interesting description about the depths of despair that these women are going through, these young women. Uh, we ourselves have experienced at one time or another. And listen to the way the narrator, who is C.S. Lewis, uh, describes this. He says, I hope no one who reads this book has been quite, quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen. At any rate, that was how it felt to these two. Hours and hours seemed to go by in this dead calm, and they hardly noticed that they were getting colder and colder. Man, if uh, 2020 could be described, I think that would probably come close, wouldn't it? I mean, that, that's that been sort of our experience, this coming to the end of this dreadful year. Coming to the end of sort of quietness. We feel like nothing is ever going to happen. Uh, it seems like the loneliness and hopelessness and horridness is never going to end, Right. That it's always going to be winter, never Christmas, as we've been using that line from the book. And I wonder about your own experiences, if you've ever had something like that, described as as the narrator describes here in the, the middle of 158, where you, you just have this miserableness and loneliness, and it's horrid. You come to the end, and it's just this quietness. Hours just continue to roll into the hours, and it seems like it's never going to end. What has that been like for you? Any experiences that you might want to share personally at the comments down below or in an email, I'd love to hear about that. 
uh, perhaps something from this past year, uh, and just the general dread that you've had since February, March, right? From the, the lockdowns, rolling into lockdowns and businesses shutting down, restaurants closing, movie theaters, you know, not able to, or being encouraged not to see people, uh, walking around in masks and, um, feeling like it's zombie land, right? I mean, that's been our experience this year. Very similar, I think, to what these young women were experiencing. Complete hopelessness. Feeling like nothing's ever going to happen. There's, I don't know if you've seen this meme on Facebook. I think it was Facebook, and I thought I saw it on Twitter too, where uh, it's at the sort of like New Year's Eve rolling in. We're expecting the new year, right? Where normally there's so much hope and expectation about the closing of one year, moving into the next, and it's 12 31 2020 rolls right over into 13 1 2020. You know, it's like, no, we're not rolling into January, the first month of the next year. We're rolling into the 13th month of the same year. And that's sort of the way we feel, isn't it? Where it's just going to keep rolling on and on into the next month. And this year is never going to end. Um, but you know, that's, that's what it feels like, isn't it? Uh, but you know, the hope of this story, which is why I picked it for the end of this 2020 crazy, and the hope of Jesus's story is that death doesn't have the final word. It isn't the end. There is hope because in our story, uh, Christ lives. And in this story, for these young women, for Narnia, Aslan lives too, right? And we come to that point in the story in chapter 15 where the stone tab table, the stone table breaks in two, which is this very interesting, um, I think, connection to the Jesus story where the veil in the, the temple uh, separating God from man splits in two right down the center when Jesus dies, which is this very important symbol uh reminding us that the veil, the separation between God and man has now been dismantled because of Jesus's life, death, and then eventually resurrection. Uh, but in that moment, in this story, the table is broken and, and they don't know what happens. Aslan all of a sudden is gone. They turn around and the body is missing of Aslan, the, the, the lion. And Susan cries out, who has done it? Who has done and what does it mean? Is it more magic? And then, yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for had, had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, not a, asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it, he said. Oh, you're real, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge 
goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there as a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now, oh yes, now, said Lucy, jumping up and clapping her hands. Man, there it is. The resurrection of Aslan and the significance that means for the world of Narnia, this adjacent world to our own, and for the the children and, and for... Think about the traitor, Edmund. And this, I mean, it just, you know, connects so perfectly to the Jesus story, doesn't it? Uh, Because the beauty of this story is the same beauty and majesty of the Christian story, that death in all its forms doesn't have the final word in our story because of the resurrection. And I love how in this story you have these girls— Two girls finding the resurrected Aslan. And you find in the Gospels the same sort of connection there. Women were the first to discover the resurrected Jesus, which if you've read some of my novels, I think particularly um, Holy Shroud, the first book in my action-adventure series, uh, that's one of the more important uh, keys to the storyline of Celeste, is recognizing that women were an important piece to the Jesus story, validating the truth of his resurrection. Uh, For that era, women were not allowed to give testimony. They were not uh, viewed as reliable witnesses. And so the fact that women and their testimony are included in the gospel narratives is super important when it comes to validating the reality and the truthfulness of the gospel story concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And, um, of course, then you have the connection between directly Aslan, his death, a willing victim who had committed no treachery, being killed in a traitor's stead, connecting perfectly to the story of Jesus, a sinless man dying the death for us sinners, us traitors, rebels against a holy God, And the power of that sinless victim, Jesus, his death being applied to us as sinners connects entirely. Uh, But of course, then you have the resurrection, the resurrection of Aslan to the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, April 3, 33 AD, something epic happened in our own world, adjacent to this Narnia world, right? The Son of God was beaten and suffered and bled to die on a Roman cross. But a few days later, something reality-altering happened. The Son of God came back to life. (laughs) Like a zombie? Like a ghost? As Susan couldn't bring herself to say, no, not like a zombie. This is not walking dead here. This is, Jesus is not undead. He is alive. And the historic Christian faith has always believed that something happened at the cross, that God paid our price in our place and objectively dealt with our three objective realities, right? Evil, sin, and death. But we also believe that something happened at the tomb, that Jesus' sacrifice worked and set into motion God's movement to put us and this world, this broken, busted world, 
back together again, which 2020 reminds us of in very painful ways that this world is broken and busted and we're longing for the ultimate recreation. And that was all set into motion because of the resurrection. And I know it's hard to believe that a man could come back to life, that a man could, after rotting in a cave for days, come back to full life. But that's what history tells us. History tells us that something totally reality-altering happened, something so profound that a group of scared Jewish 20-somethings launched one of the biggest revolutions this world has ever witnessed, the Christian faith. And over the years, a lot of people have tried to explain away what has happened. They've tried to rationalize the historic fact that the tomb is empty. Uh, some people have said that Jesus didn't actually die, that when he was taken down from the cross, he sort of just appeared dead. Muslims actually hold to this belief, uh, but except this makes no sense whatsoever, given what it was like to experience the cross with all of its, as I say, pornographic violence and agony. No one could have come down from that cross and lived. There's also the theory that Jesus' disciples stole the body, uh, that they snuck in under the cover of darkness to remove him in order to perpetuate this, this myth that he was resurrected. But this doesn't jibe at all with the historic realities of the time either, considering that Rome viewed Jesus as a terrorist and as an insurrectionist who was a threat to the power structure of Rome. This would have been like an Osama bin Laden. All right, Rome was afraid that religious chaos would break out because of Jesus. They never would have let that body get away from them, which is why they posted the, the legion of Roman guards there to guard it. There was this rumor that they might steal the body, and so the, the Jewish authorities had them post these guards, and no one could have gotten past them. They were like the Navy SEALs, okay, the, the Marines. N nothing gets past them. And... There's no way that a, a small band of scared, depressed 20-somethings could have taken on these battle-hardened Roman soldiers. No way. All right. Yet, it's this historical fact that the tomb is empty, that something happened. And the Bible says that hundreds of people saw that Jesus was alive, that he was actually physically, bodily resurrected. The disciples said they saw him in flesh and, in flesh and blood. A guy named Paul says that 500 people saw him at once. And the Bible says that the women uh, saw him walking around. I referenced that earlier. In fact, they were the first eyewitnesses. Again, an important fact to the story. And so the fact that the early church built their teachings on this reality that Jesus was alive is incredibly important. The fact that they were willing to die for their belief that he rose from the dead means that at least they believed that something happened. But why die for a lie? If it was a lie that Jesus, if, if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead as they, as they, as the early disciples went to their own grave believing, all right, they, they, the only explanation is that what happened 2,000 years ago really did happen. It's a good thing that what happened those that 2,000 years ago really did happen, because that means that death didn't have the final word in Jesus' story. 
which means that it doesn't have the final word in our story either because Jesus lives. It matters that he lives because if he didn't, then we are all still in big, big trouble. If Aslan wouldn't have risen from the the dead, in, in as the story makes it out, uh, Narnia would not have come back to life. Edmund himself would still have uh, been bound to the queen. And as the story continues in chapter 16, all those statues of stone would never have come back till their full resurrected glory as we ourselves will at one point in time. And we find the first fruits of Aslan's resurrection, so to speak, uh, all throughout chapter 16, right? Where the cold stone statues become warm and living on page 168. I love how this begins, right? Uh, the uh, Aslan opened, or the lion uh, that was a stone statue opened his great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn, and now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself. Then having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking around him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. I love that imagery. And then it continues. The, the lion is uh, wandering around and and everywhere that Lucy and Susan looked, statues were coming to life. The courtyard looked no longer like a museum and looked more like a zoo. And I love that line, right? The courtyard looked no longer like a museum, looked more like a zoo. Uh, and I love that because a museum, of course, is filled with stone cold dead things. Uh, but a zoo is filled with alive things. And you see this on, and then on page 169, the whole place rang with the sound of happy roarings, brayings, yelpings, barkings, squealings, cooings, neighing, stampings, shouts, hurrahs, songs, laughter. Everything that you would expect to find in a zoo and everything that you would expect to find from these cold, though, uh, dead, cold, stone beings being brought back to life by the resurrected Aslan and the same happens to us as well, who encounter Jesus and his story, being brought back to life. As Second uh, Corinthians 5 says, Paul writes that the old has gone, the new has come. We are made alive in Christ Jesus because of his own resurrection work in our life when we commit our lives to him in faith. And, of course, throughout the entire rest of the chapter, he le- wants to leave no corner unsearched as Chapter one or page 171 says, you never know where some poor prisoner might be concealed. And so they rushed around the whole dark, horrible, fusty old castle uh, and looking for anyone who might need Aslan's resurrecting power. The whole crowd of liberated statues surged back into the courtyard at last. And it was then that someone, Tumnus, I think, first said, but how are we going to get out? Then, of course, they all jump out, all these resurrected beings, liberated beings, and I love that word, liberated, uh, the same sort of feeling we all have in Christ, being liberated from our former life, brought into the new life of Christ, and then they all leave. All of these uh, stone-cold dead beings that Aslan brought to new life, and I love that connection to our own story. Again, getting into the deeper elements of chapter 16, how 
we who are in Christ are made alive, no longer the old stone cold dead hearts, but instead uh, in in our lives now being brought into new life in Christ. And then when we eventually die in this life, being having the hope of the resurrection later, when Jesus Christ comes again in full resurrected glory to recreate this world and put us literally back together again uh, at the resurrection of the dead, which of course the, the Christian faith, our creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed ends with that hope of the resurrection of the dead. And Edmund himself, and I want to end here in chapter 17, now that we've gotten through all the, the statues of chapter 16 being brought back to life, now we come to the kids, the, the children who fight the final battle with the white queen and all of her minions. And um, Edmund is sort of the, his story is brought full circle uh, in chapter 17. The final battle, he's injured, he's covered in blood, mouth open, a nasty green color. Lucy comes down and gives him her uh, sort of healing po- potion. And what happens to him? Uh, when at last she was free to come back to Edmund, she found him standing on his feet and not only healed of his wounds, but looking better than she had seen him be- look before. Oh, f- for ages, in fact, ever since she his first term at that horrid school, which was where he had begun to go wrong. He had become his real old self again and could look you in the face. And there in the field of battle, Aslan made him a knight. There you have it. Aslan makes him a knight. Edmund is brought to his real old self again. <laughs> I love that because here we have Edmund, uh, his story coming full circle rather than this horrid boy being uh in the way that he used to treat Lucy and Peter and his siblings and everyone around him in sort of this anger and pride and envy, he's brought to his real old self again His and finds his true self, his true identity, thanks to Aslan's work in his life, which, again, the deeper elements of the story is what we find in Christ as well, right? Restoring us to our true selves, our true purpose, We find this in the story of Edmund. We find this in the story of the kids as well when they are crowned by Aslan as queens, as kings, and then he assigns them their names. Peter is Peter the Magnificent. Susan is Susan the Gentle. Edmund is Edmund the Just. Lucy is Queen Lucy the Valiant. These names are given by Aslan to recognize to recognize their true selves, who they really are. And it was only in Asland that these kids, Susan, Lucy, Peter, Edmund, found their true identity as sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. And the same is true for us as well. For those of us who find ourselves in Christ through our faith in him, through his life, death, resurrection, we find the rescue and recreation we've all been longing for. We discover who we really are, our truest selves as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and God's crowning achievement who are beckoned into his family and who will eventually rule with Christ himself on the new heaven and the new earth. Of course, this story ends uh, and rolls into the next one and perhaps 
uh, one of these days we'll do another book club, getting into the next story in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I can't help but think about how our stories continue on as well in the story of Jesus Christ. Despite all the crazy that's happened this year, we're coming at the end, as I record this at the very last week of 2020, coming into 2021. And uh, it won't be the 13th month of 2020, thankfully. Um, It'll be the first year of 2021, and we can be thankful that that signals to us a a bit of hope for the new year. And I hope that uh, all of us will find our hope in uh, this enchanting, inspiring story that this symbolizes the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe with our bigger, broader story with Christ in the power that he has continuing to move in this world, in our own lives, to uh, bring about Christmas in this perpetual winter and restore us in our broken, busted world to its original intended glory. Your life, my life, the, the whole entire creation is groaning and crying out for that moment when Jesus returns, and one day he will. And I hope that that is what we fix our hope on coming into this new year, that uh, we have that waiting for us, that eventually Jesus will return to put this broken, busted world back together again in our own lives, and he's working on that as we speak. So thanks again for Uh, being part of this first religion and fiction book club using C.S. Lewis's beloved Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's been a joy for me to walk through some of the the elements of this story, and I hope that it's been as enchanting and inspiring and encouraging for you as it has been for me. Thanks so much for joining our adventure through Narnia, exploring the intersection of the sacred and story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Do leave a comment and be sure to sign up to the newsletter to receive insights into the sacred and story. Next week, we will have an episode on my own interest in stories as a former pastor and theologian. Until then, happy reading.